Hey, thanks so much for checking out this episode of Golf Strategy School. Now, I know you're listening because you want to learn how to play better golf. But if you want to see how you compare to other golfers your age, you need to check out parforsuccess.com slash Griffin. That is par, the number four, success.com slash Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N. And what it will do is it will actually give you a free assessment where you can see exactly how you measure up against other people your age. And you can see where you're excelling, where you need to focus your time on. And this is an assessment, honestly, that you can take once a month just to see how you're progressing throughout your golf journey. So again, check out parforsuccess.com slash Griffin to see how you measure up against other golfers your age. What's up, everybody? My name is Marty Griffin, and you are listening to the Golf Strategy School Podcast. This is the only podcast designed to really help those higher handicap golfers. We're talking people who are still trying to, you know, get over those milestone scores of breaking 90 and breaking 100. Now, we have been talking in our last episode with Josh, Mike, and Dave from Golf Tech in Columbus about, like, all the intricacies, the ins and outs of club fitting. So this is part two of that episode. We're going to finish off our conversation about driver fittings by talking about shafts, and then we're going to move into the iron fitting process. Now, it's very, very similar, but we're going to go deep into some conversation on different types of things to be aware of with club fitting in irons. Talking about heads, whether it's forged heads, cast heads. We're going to be talking about blades versus game improvement irons and some things to be aware of in there. So it's a really good informational in-depth conversation. We're also going to talk about some statistical benchmarks that people look at to really help determine what clubs are best for them. So I really hope you like this. Join us. Get ready. Let's jump into it. Part two of the club fitting Q&A with Josh, Mike and Dave from Golf Tech Columbus. Do you love to play golf? Do you wish you could be a more consistent and confident player? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Golf Strategy School podcast, where we discuss specific practice strategies used by some of the best golf instructors from around the world. Here's your host, Marty Griffin. And then like the, the only last thing to look at in this regard, I mean, not the only last thing, but the last typical thing you would look at is the golf shaft. And so I'll let these guys talk a little bit about golf shaft, um, whoever wants to start first and talk about how that could influence ball flight. I'll let stock Dave go. Okay. So typically if we have a lighter weighted shaft, say in the 40 to 50 gram range, um, that's going to allow our golf ball to spin more and launch higher as we start to get stiffer and go toward um, 60, 65 gram stiffs. Then, then we're starting to see that, that backspin decrease, the ball flight come down. And then as we start to get into the stiff range between 70 to 80, or extra stiff range between 70 to 80 grams, we really start to see the, the, the trajectory come down and also backspin. So Dave, I got a question for you. So, my dad, 65, um, stud football player, big dude, can't swallow his pride, wants to play the blue tees. Mm-hmm. Um, I got him for Christmas this year the new Titleist TS1 
with the Fujikura air speeder shaft. Yeah. Um, this might be good to expand upon as to why he is hitting that golf ball further than his driver. That was um, the nine seventeen with a stiff shaft. Why is my dad hitting it further? Because he is probably creating more club head speed. Yeah, there we go. That's that's what I was looking for. <clears throat> so, like, the more club head speed a golfer creates, the the more spin they put on the golf ball. So, you have somebody um, who hits it about 10 yards shorter than Dave, myself. Um, that's a Can joke. Can get that on record? Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um so someone like myself who flies it past Dave and waves at his ball as it's going by, it's a lot of spin on the golf ball because my average ball speed would be 160 to 162. And, um, but because I'm swinging it faster, it's going to have a lot of, of spin on it. So that's why I have something with lower spin. And I don't necessarily, I wouldn't say I, I like to launch it at, 11 just because it's eye appealing like a line drive but others would beg to say otherwise let's let's have a brief conversation about how like launch especially when you get a player that hits the ball far enough especially if you get a player that like knows what tees they play like how could one leverage launch to make that ball that driver more accurate yeah so i guess if I get like maybe a, a good way that I always assess it or I ask guys is before when they're coming into the fitting, I always like to ask a lot of questions before I have them hit shots. And so I'll, I'll ask them like, Hey, you know, when you hit your driver, does, does it hit and roll or do you notice it kind of hits and stops? What, what do you, what do you see? And, and more often than not, they say, well, it kind of hits and stops and doesn't really get any roll. Well, you're launching it too high and you're spinning it too much. And, um, the more the ball spins, the bigger the misses get. So probably need to lower the spin a little bit. Does that kind of help answer it, Josh? Yeah. 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 I, so I could take the alternative view on that too. If you have a guy that hits it plenty far enough, like I have been in fitting situations where I've had him play a higher lofted driver. Um, mm-hmm. it might cost him a couple yards in max distance. Um, yeah. but it does make that driver effectively more accurate. Like neither driver takes it out of the, the optimal launch windows. Um, but like knowing that like a lot of golfers, especially golfers that we teach, um, they may play like in a, they may hit it plenty far when they catch it. The problem is they don't catch it often enough. Um, but they play like tees from 6,400 yards or less. And so like at a certain point, like how far do you need to hit it? Like if you play from 6,400 yards, like you don't necessarily have to hit it 295 to, to compete there. Um, if you can hit it 260, you're still picking up strokes on most of the people you're playing with. Um, and so like, that's a way that I've leveraged, like going higher loft to make the driver less dispersed. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with that. I mean, here's a fun fact for everybody listening. The PGA tour average birdie percentage jumps at 165 and that's only 25%. So I always like to tell guys, let's get to 165 and, and go from there. When you, you mean 165. 165. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> 160, 165 yards into with an approach shot. Ah, so 165 yards from the hole. Yep, 165 yards from the hole. So I, I always like to kind of use that as a baseline and say, um, which club is going to get them inside of 165? And in doing that by, okay, which one is getting them the most shots in the fairway and still keeping some some distance there? 
I think that is a awesome piece of information. It's interesting because I, that's kind of in my head, my, that's the start of my danger zone. Like over 165, I'm feeling less confident about hitting the green yeah. from 165 to probably about 135. I feel the same level of, yeah, yeah, I, I, I got this. I got this. And then, you know, when I, I take a step in from there, if I like 115 is like my hot zone, that's, that's my favorite distance. It's my favorite club. I feel most confident from there, but I don't ever feel like I'm going to miss the green inside of 165. But from about that point and out, it's one of those things where the goal changes a little bit. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it shifts to let's get within five or 10 yards of the green. If I get on, that's fantastic. If not, yeah. whatever, we'll work on it from there. And half the time, you know, it might be like 173 to the pin. The pin's on the back third. I say, screw it. I'm hitting my 165 club and taking a 40-foot putt. Yeah. Can I can – I, I think this would be really cool. I'm going to boost everybody's ego that's listening. Um, and, and Josh and Dave, you may ask, you know the answer to this, but um, Marty, I'll ask you this question. What do you think the average distance in feet away from the hole a PGA Tour player is hitting – their shot does that make sense so length of their first putt yep 22 it's gonna say about 27 to 30 from that yardage wow it's just not that close man it's just not if you really look at the numbers like it's just not that close like they're really really good and like that's really really hard to do uh but like it's not as close as people say like how the amount of times like at least you and I have talked so much, Marty, and then, like, you've played enough golf, but, like, most of the time when somebody asks that question, like, I get the answer, like, oh, 10 feet, 15 feet. Like, yeah, no, not even close. That's Sunday golf. Yeah. Well, I had – I just had to share this story. I was in a random Facebook group where I just normally lurk, and this guy had posted about how he finally realized, he came to the realization, and this is, like, a high handicappers group, Uh, He came to the realization that it's the short game and the putting that really saves so many strokes. And then his very next question was, so how do I get on the green in regulation? I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. If if you're telling me that you just figured out that short game and putting is where the real magic happens, how come the question isn't, you know, how do I make that part of my game bulletproof? He's like, well, uh, my short game is pretty good. I'm like, okay, what's the average length of your first putt? putt? And I, I pulled that 22 out of my head because I think I read somewhere that that is the average length of an amateur's first putt, regardless of where they're coming onto the green from. <laughs> this guy either uh, should never be trusted as a carpenter or is secretly horrible off the tee because he said his average first putt is inside of 10 feet. He's not hitting a lot of greens. No. no. <laughs> or he's putting onto them when he does. <laughs> yeah. Putting from the rough. Yeah. yeah that's, very, uh, very true. Um, one thing I want to summarize real quick, because I think it might've got lost in the shuffle from the answers when we were talking golf shafts. As a general rule of thumb, the lighter and less stiff, the higher launching, higher spinning. The mm-hmm. heavier and the more stiff, the lower launching and lower spinning. So just like put a tidy bow on all this. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a fantastic thing to call out because it totally did get lost in the wash. Yeah, I mean, and then you, and then if you want to even get more in depth with it, you could talk about like we call them fancy shafts um, or a higher performing shaft. Most people will know them as an upcharge shaft um, compared to a to a stock shaft, and um, I tend to. I really like just the high, the performance shafts just because I know the, <clears throat> they perform. Um, but that doesn't go to say that um, there's been fittings where I've had a guy in, in word or lady is and we're hitting a same club head. One shaft is a, a $300 upcharge. The other shaft is, and that's a, a number And the other shaft would be stock. Right. And they actually hit the stock one better. Um, it's like just going back to like where are we have the optimal launch conditions based on that golfer and we're trying to make it as efficient as possible on all shots, especially the misses. Before I butt in, I want Dave to talk on the other end of this, uh, this, this argument or this debate about the upgraded shafts versus the, the stock shafts. And then I'll try my best to, to share my experience. So Dave, I'd love to hear what you got to say. So my opinion is, is that most manufacturers try their best to develop or recruit a shaft that performs best with their club heads that, you know, align with the technology they have going on. Um, not saying that I haven't had success using upcharge shafts in some fittings, but I feel like we can probably get within a five to 10 yard. We're talking about distance within five to 10 yards of not having to use the upcharge shaft, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I would, I would, I mean, and I, that's, they, I think the manufacturers are totally trying to find a shaft that, that works best with their club head. Also, I think they're trying to find the, the shaft where the company is paying them the most to have it. Um, that's where I, I've just been a tinkerer myself and always trying to find the next little edge to outdrive Dave. Um, and, and just <laughs> like, I, I am really big on, you know, like if I want to, if I want something to perform better and I'll use the analogy of a car, like if I want a car to go fast and look nice and have black leather seats and um, I'm going to go with an Acura, whereas I can get the, the suede seats and have my, two-year-old spill his juice all over it and then I have to worry about the stain later um like I always I like the higher performing shafts because I know typically the materials are going to be better the variance for air is going to be tighter um that shaft strictly came from a different manufacturer where they're priding themselves on um what they deliver to the OEM or, or the manufacturer. So um, I have the um, Project X handcrafted uh, red. So the shaft is all red, very rare. Um, and I know that that shaft came from their department and then they sent that to Callaway to then send to me. So it's, whereas this the if we're talking you pulling 15 shafts off an assembly line from a manufacturer like i know project x or oban or graphite design they're 
tolerance for error is going to be a lot tighter than in maybe what's actually produced in in the other manufacturers. Let me let me take a second and like try to try to show like the higher handicap golfers that primary listen to this show, like why this conversation, even though it seems like it's above your head or above your skill level or unnecessary. And also take it from the, the aspect that a lot of golfers in that class are also looking at golf as a value um, and think budget wise and don't have endless sums of money to spend on golf clubs and golf shafts. I still think all this is important to hear. Um, and I think Mike touched on a lot of it there just a moment ago when he was talking the quality control of the equipment. Um, when you have any item manufactured in mass, the quality control is going to be less than an item that is not manufactured in mass. And so you need to be cognizant when you purchase something that like when you get an upgraded, um, uh, we at, at our golf tech, we call them fancy shafts. Um, those items tend to have higher quality control. They also often have the ability to do things that, um, the stock or the more basic um, shafts can't do. They'll be able to perform in ways in which you can't get it. So as a fitter, here's how I look at it. I always bring in an option that is the stock shaft because I want to see as good as that would do. And I just start narrowing down and see what that does. If I still can't get to the launch conditions that I want, then I start to incorporate, incorporate a more upgraded shaft. Um, I did a fitting over the the last weekend where we had a golfer that like, I just couldn't get the spin low enough and the launch or the spin high enough and the launch high enough to work um, in the fitting. So what I had to do was I had to go to one of the upgraded shafts to make it work. It is very rare in the world of fitting that you can get a ball to launch high and spin low. Those are two opposite things. And there is occasion in some of these upgraded shafts that that's possible. So mm -hmm. like it would be a bad idea of me as a fitter not to include that as an option. But like yeah. Dave was saying, like it's also important to look at like they do pick good shafts for a reason. So when we say stock, it's not like the low end model of a car. These are nice golf shafts. And we do have the instance where some, some of the manufacturers have what may be not an upgrade to them in their shaft stock shaft lineup as you go to another manufacturer, they they're charging more for that same shaft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see that all the time with, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll throw a brand here. Mizuno. Um, we're big, big advocates of Mizuno at our golf tech and they're the rare golf company that they have minimal shafts, minimal shafts that they call upgrades. And so like oftentimes you can get a higher valued shaft from that manufacturer um, for no additional charge. Yeah. Um, and so you're honestly handing that golfer a better quality product. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, I mean, to put a dollar amount on it, like that Mizuno driver, like you take any of their shafts that they offer, let's use the Fujikur Atmos Black. Like you take that shaft and put it in any other company that's a $800 driver and you're paying just the normal retail price for it and you know you're getting a quality club. Um, and like, so Marty, here's a, here's a question for you. Like you had the R7, correct? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then what driver did you upgrade to? M1. Okay. How many years apart are they in, in being released? I want to say, at, we'll conservatively say at least a decade. Okay. So at least a decade. So um, if you knew that you had a higher performing shaft 
and you're probably going to keep that driver for 10 years. Like, okay, well like that $600, $700 that you just spent on the driver, knowing you're going to use it for 10 years and you're still going to keep the quality of the performance in your shots just as well or just as good. Like, doesn't it make kind of sense to, to kind of at least look at that option? Oh yeah. When you amateurize that cost over the lifetime usage of the driver, as, at least for someone in my situation where I'm, I'm realistically probably holding on to it for at the very minimum five years, but probably outwards of maybe eight to 10. Yeah. That becomes easily justifiable. I mean, if it's a $800 out the door club and I use it for eight years, that's a hundred bucks a year. That's yeah. not really, I mean, I spend more on that, more on golf balls. Yeah. Why, why do people like, I guess in, in my kind of battle of like why those shafts are, are really good to, to at least try is like, why do people drive Honda civics forever? Cause they do what? They last. They run forever. Right. And so like, like if you know that you're going to have a shaft that's made for Marty and it's going to work and it's, it's has good quality materials in it like and it's gonna last like awesome let's just let's look at that option yeah i think it's really important for all golfers especially if they're being fitted to i mean you should have a level of trust with whoever you're working with as a fitter and if they say hey let's try this combination they're not saying hey I'm going to sell this to you right now. They're saying, let's look at what data this produces. Yeah. Because in the long run, you know, if I tell you that there's a club that's going to put you 310 right down the center of the fairway every time, but it's pink and it has unicorn sparkles on it. If it puts you 310 down the middle, you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's about Wait, can I have one has. of those? Yeah, well, I mean, you're going to have to take it away from uh, my seven-year-old daughter first. And we call okay. her Moose for a reason, so good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that goes, you know, absolutely to your point, Mike, that, you know, most people are making an investment for a pretty significant period of time. So just because it might be a slightly higher dollar amount than they were considering doesn't necessarily remove it from an option on the table when you start looking at, you know, the kind of cost per year ownership type of thing. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think it even matters to like, well, you know, like I'm not that good, good of a golfer. Like, I don't, I don't know if I need to do something like, no, like you came because you wanted to get better and you're hoping to get better through some new clubs. Like don't sell yourself short. Like let's, let's try to solve this problem together. Yeah. If, if part of the solution is as easy as pointing at something on a wall and saying, I'll take that one. That's not something that you have to, ingrain into your swing you work with your fitter you find the club that works best for you if it comes with a fancy shaft or if a stock shaft works better rock and roll but that's something that takes like little to no upkeep in terms of actual like practice Mm -hmm. (laughs) to keep that part of your game at this higher level it's literally a one and done it's it's not going to change unless you have like a drastic change in your physical abilities in terms of, you know, that not being properly fit for you anymore. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, it makes me realize that I should probably be fitted for some new irons pretty soon. Mm-hmm. 
So let's kind of use actually that as a transition point. So we've been talking about drivers. We've been talking about, you know, the, the launch angle, how the lower, uh, the spin is going to come from a stiffer shaft and that's going to keep you in a lower trajectory. When we're looking at getting fitted for irons, how is this different? I imagine it probably starts pretty similarly with that ball speed, right? Absolutely. The process is very much the same. So once we know the ball speed, you know, what then comes into account? Because, you know, we talked about our frequency chart with the driver figuring out, you know, what that optimal launch condition is. What are, like, is there any difference in terms of the optimal launch condition between a driver and being fitted for irons? Difference how? Like if the numbers are the exact same or if the process is the exact same? Well, I guess I'm kind of thinking down both trains of thought. So if we have, I mean, we know that we want to be hitting up on a driver to help increase that, uh, increase that launch angle. With irons, we want to have a descending strike. So what are some things that are going into producing that, that optimal situation with an iron? Either you guys want to take that? Yeah, Marty here. Well, I don't want to just want to just roll. I can role play with you on like maybe how I would approach it. Yeah. Hi, Mister Mike. I'd like to buy uh, some new irons. Yeah. Well, what has you interested in new irons? Uh, well, that voice got old really quick. Uh, <laughs> uh, honestly, I've been playing my current set for a significant period of time. I feel like I have a pretty good control over them. But I just feel like the age of the club, because of my experience having upgraded driver, that the age of the club is probably holding me back in terms of distance and therefore scoring. Okay. Um, is there any particular clubs that you're noticing the distance to lack more than another? Or is the, I always like to ask, like when you hit your shots, uh, and say you do hit it pretty well, or is in your lands on the green, does it hit and stop? Does it hit and roll out? What, what does a, sh- a typical shot look like? Uh, I usually get them to, to stop pretty quickly. I produce a fairly heavy draw with little to no effort. So, you know, being able to actually hit greens and stop them is cool. I'm glad I can do that. But when I get kind of outside that 165 yard area, I feel a big dip in confidence And I just feel that, you know, like right now my seven iron runs me to about 162. So I feel that if the club performs, if the, you know, if the seven iron performs better, does that then improve my comfortable zone from 165 out to maybe 170 or 172 or four or five, because now that seven iron goes further. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that, and that's a typical thing that we, in most things, we we find is if we can obviously increase distance, brings the scoring clubs more into play. Um, sounds like you know probably the best solution, Marty, is to have you bring those set of clubs in and and let's maybe figure out why that seven iron is not going so far and, and actually see if it actually is, you know, the club and it, its makeup to to really try to find something better for you. Um, does that sound like something you'd want to do? 
Yeah, I think the other thing I would like to look at because I haven't looked at it since I was a kid was the potential of using graphite shafts instead of the steel shafts I have. Totally, and we have all we have hundreds of shaft and clubhead combinations that we can we can test. And you know, at the end of the day, our, our my job is, is I'm, I'm trying to get the ball to perform as best as it can based on the way Marty swings the club, and and then from there, let's let's kind of fine tune it and figure out which one is going to you know put us to where we're more comfortable in that 170 range or at least maxing out some distance and still getting balls to hit and stop on the green. And like, so that, that's a good, an example of, of some questions that I always like to ask to, to golfers um, before they, before they even come in is um, Josh or Dave, do you have anything to add to it? I don't think I'd take from the, the questions, but like with, with like, if we use Marty as an example to frame this whole conversation, um, like, if he wants to hit it further so he can be comfortable with a club outside of that 160, 165 range where he currently starts to lose comfort, like club companies have gotten really, really good um, at how they have made golf clubs go further. It's like, it's really remarkable if you hear a guy who's talking to you on the phone or you're talking to a golfer and says, as I've gotten older, um, I'm hitting it significantly shorter. Um, and so my next call, my next question with that has become, well, when's the last time you looked at golf clubs? Because what they've done in particular with irons in the last 10, 15 years, there is really very little reason that if you're upgrading golf clubs, that you should be losing any significant amount of distance. And I could even make an argument that like a certain age group of people have, should have be gaining distance. Um, and that's because they've gotten really, really good with what they've done with lofts. So like lofts are significantly stronger um, now than they used to be. Um, and so like this could like start a whole conversation because I've read things online or have had people say to me that like they, they don't want to play these strong lofted golf clubs. And like, I really don't understand why, like if they perform the same, because they've gotten really smart with what they do with weighting in the head. They're like, if you can make it less loft. So like Marty, with your set of golf clubs, like, are we saying it's five, 10 years old? Um, yeah, it is. It will be 11 or 12 years old this year. Okay, oh so, my goodness. So it's very likely that his, his seven iron is, is what loft Dave? 34 ish. 34. And so Marty, I know Marty well enough to know that he's a low single digit player. So like you could put him in an iron that's good enough for a low single digit player. That's going to be around what loft? 29. Oh, geez. 29 to 32. Here's the thing, Marty. Like, based on all that stuff we said with uh, driver shafts, the same stuff applies to iron shafts. So, like, yes, we're going lower lofted. So that does mean that it it should launch lower and spin less. But that's not true. And that's not true because of what they've done with weight and the amount of shaft options available. So, like, literally – you can now get a souped up golf club and have no downside. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's, David, our, David, that's our nitrous oxide Honda Civic. Correct. Yeah. Even like Titleist is making a, a club that we could consider uh, super hot. Um, it's just the way the world's going now. And like if each manufacturer doesn't have that going on, they're, they're definitely losing the race. And another, another thing, I, in my opinion, people aren't playing, these stronger lofted clubs because they're afraid of 
maybe their ego um, getting hurt. Touche. Well, kind of on that same ego thought, I hear it all the time from people who don't have any business saying it. I'm playing some blades, brah. It's like, I've seen you swing. You need a hockey stick, not blades. So where, like, when people are kind of thinking their way through, like, all the different versions of irons now, you know, we hear about, like, game improvement irons. We hear cavity back, muscle back, uh, forged blades. Is, is there like a kind of a generalized pattern that we should see where like higher handicappers, obviously for higher handicappers, we probably want to trend towards those game improvement irons, but like, why is that a better choice? And if it's not, I'm, you know, I, I got my hands raised. I'm totally willing to be wrong. Uh, but if game improvement irons, are a good thing for high handicappers. Why is that the case? What makes them a good choice? Well, I think, you know, there's two benefits to each category, right? You have a player's iron or a blade, and then you have a game improvement iron. Well, when you have a game improvement iron, you're you're doing a lot of different things to that club head to make it more forgiving, right? So you're making it more forgiving, and you're giving up maybe a sense of control. Whereas you have a blade, like the way that that is made is you're gaining more control, but you're losing the forgiveness. And so it's, it's what are we needing to accomplish in the shots could then determine, okay, which club head to go into or, or, or whatnot. Like more often than not, like if we're uh, a high handicapper, we need to launch the golf ball a little bit higher so it hits and stops on the green and gives us more uh, of a cushion on the shots that we don't hit in the center of the club face. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. Like, give me something that gives me as much forgiveness as possible but still doesn't look like a shovel. <laughs> I was going to say basically the same thing. It's like I I play to right around a, you know, a five handicap and like I, you, you would have to pay me to play blades. It's just like, if, if I'm thinking about my shot, like I, I don't really want it to go left or right. Like it's a good thing if you're telling me this doesn't want to shape the shot. And I think a lot of people, like Dave was saying, a lot of people kind of get hung up on that ego part and they, they know that if they hit the sweet spot on blades, it's going to go a mile and a half. But the problem is that sweet spot is the size of a dime on blades. Whereas you're playing a game improvement iron. And now that sweet spot has ballooned out to like the size of a 50 cent piece. And it's not going to go a country mile, but like Josh said, because of the improvement, because of the stronger lofting, you're not getting as much like, actual transfer of energy if we you know if we actually broke it down newton by newton we're not getting as much energy transfer into the ball but because of that stronger lofting and the improvement in the weighting of the faces we're also not losing distance overall is that fair to say yeah 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 yeah. i mean i think that's like this is a super nuanced conversation that isn't just skill level um speed plays a role in this too I might have a higher handicap golfer that is also high speed, 
Um, and so I can't necessarily throw them into the maximum game improvement iron um, because what that would do to the launch conditions, I, I couldn't bring them in to the optimal launch conditions for that golf club. So mm -hmm. I might have to go with something that is um, a little more like the forged mm -hmm. side of things. Uh, I think like, I, I can take it one step further and say like, like I get, we got cavity back blade, et cetera. But like, if we want to look at it, we can make it really, really simple. We have forged golf clubs and we that was have me, yeah. so that's how I feel about me and, and Mike. forged golf club is, is a golf club where a hot hunk of metal was stuck together um, and made into a mold. Um, people like those because of the way they feel um, or sound. That's that feedback that Mike was talking about. Cast golf clubs, they've taken that forged and they've glued weight onto it. So they've glued another piece onto it to influence that center of gravity, to influence those launch conditions, which has taken away some of that sound or feel um, and made it more forgiving, made it do things that the other one doesn't. And like to lastly, like put all this, like in my current set of golf clubs, I play a forge golf club, six iron through wedge. My four and five iron are a cast game improvement iron. And it is the single best decision that I have made in the last five years for my golf game. I have mm -hmm. never set over a four iron um, in my life and felt more confident than I do now. Why, Josh? Why? Well, I mean, to be honest, like when I miss hit it, the ball, the distance stays at least in a closer percentage to what I would anticipate or hope my four iron would go. Um, plus, like the size of the head allows it to go um a little bit further so i've picked up distance on that category so like being the shortest hitter on this phone call um but having to play tees that are too far back too often because i am a golf professional i play a lot of long par threes and so having long irons that i can be confident in it's 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 incredible interesting <clears throat> i like that uh that insinuation that i somehow hit farther than you <laughs> <laughs> i'm typically the shortest hitter in the group so uh, that's how I feel about me and Mike. What's that, Mike? Uh, I didn't say anything. I, oh, I it was Dave. <laughs> yeah, that Dave. was me. Uh, so that's how I feel about me and Mike. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have some type of rivalry. Uh, I know a lot of the listeners in my audience, their, <laughs> their rivalry tends to be, you know, the yin and yang between a good round and a bad round. And I think that this conversation about fitting and what it can do for you, and more importantly, just some of like the fundamentals behind what they're being told. I really hope that this does a lot for the audience because things, just kind of putting it in real basic buckets, like the fact that uh, a lighter, less stiff shaft is going to give you a higher launch and a higher spin rate whereas a stiffer shaft is going to keep you lower uh, both uh, trajectory-wise and spin rate. You know, the fact, like, I, it never would have crossed my mind that a shaft that's handed to me that's labeled stiff might be anything other than stiff. Never would have thought of that in a thousand years. So for my listeners out there, I, I hope this clears some things up. I think this is a really good conversation. Uh, just kind of one parting thought from each of you on the fitting process, you know, whether, you know, whether it's just kind of like a state of mind that the customer should be kind of thinking of, or maybe it's just kind of a best practice. Cause I know 
and it's something that you, you all pointed out right at the beginning. It's something that stuck with me when Josh told me to get fitted. He goes, take your club with you, hit your clubs first, prove out the control data set and then operate from there. That was a big eye opener for me because a, you don't know if they have the, you know, the machine set to like Colorado elevation. So you hit it 9,000 yards. Um, but at least you're doing a control set first. So Dave, if you want to lead us off, uh, you know, what would, what would be kind of one just kind of parting thought for people who are getting fitted, whether it be driver or uh, irons uh, to keep in mind? Um, I would say if you haven't been fit, um, go do so. And if you have equipment that's probably older than three, four years, you're probably missing out on yardage uh, guaranteed. Excellent. Excellent. Cause I know as the person who apparently holds on to clubs longer than anybody else on this call, um, I clearly need to do exactly that. Uh, <laughs> Mike, how about you? What's your, your last parting thought for people getting fitted? You know, still like, don't sell yourself short. Like even if you did just get new clubs, like go get them fit or at least go get them, go test them to, to see if, you know, if they're really right for you and um, at least give yourself the, reassurance that you either have what's right for you or if you don't and I mean I guess my question would be for all the golfers out there is um, do you want your clubs to look cool coming out of your trunk or do you like taking money from your buddies (laughs) that's that's exactly my listeners are used to that type of advice I say all the time what's your goal to have the coolest story in the bar afterwards or to have the lowest number on the card Cause that's really PXGs look really nice coming out of your trunk. But if you just got beat by the guy who hit it down the fairway on the green two putt, like I want to know what that guy did. Exactly. Exactly. Josh, I'll leave you with the final word. So same thing. I end every, every or start every single fitting with, and then ask at the end. Um, when I recommend a golf club to you, I don't want you to be like, well, I trust that Josh guy is what he said I need. I want you to know why you needed that golf club. And I want you to be able to tell all of your friends why you needed that golf club. Cause I want the guys that I fit to be the most knowledgeable people about golf clubs in their, in their group. And if they're not, I didn't do my job. Um, and so if you're going out there and getting fit and you don't walk out of the fitting, knowing exactly why that's the best golf club for you, then I'd advise you try to look for another fitting. Cause that's the type of thing you need to get out of the fitting is to know why you got the recommendation that you did. Excellent, excellent parting advice there. Yeah, you should absolutely be able to understand why this is the best tool for you and more importantly, almost be able to explain it because then you actually do have a full grasp and understanding. Uh, Gentlemen, I really, really appreciate it. Again, we've got Dave Rosinski, Josh Boggs, and Mike McNutt from Golf Tech in Columbus, Ohio, joining us on today's call. It was an absolutely fantastic conversation, gentlemen. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, sir. As we've just heard from Mike, Dave, and Josh from Golf Tech in Columbus, there are a ton of things that you need to keep in mind when you are getting fitted for clubs. Things like the fact that the lighter the shaft and the less stiff, means that it's going to give you more spin and more height on your ball. But those types of things, especially with irons, can be counteracted with this new technology and what they do with the weights. Yes, it may be a stronger loft, a steeper loft, but they can still get that ball up in the air based on how 
the clubs are manufactured with this strategic weighting to give you your maximum type of ball flight. Now, the other thing that I really want you guys to keep in mind is that pros still struggle with this stuff, all right? This is something that we talk about all the time in our podcast, about how we have these unrealistic expectations in ourselves. I don't know if you caught that, but I'm just going to highlight it again right here that the PGA Tour birdie percentage jumps to 25% from 165 yards. So I want you to ask yourself, what do you have to do to get yourself inside of that point? And from that distance, that first putt length on the PGA Tour from 165 yards is 27 feet. You don't have to knock it dead on every shot. Just try not to end up incurring a penalty stroke. That's really kind of the gist of this. And make sure that your your equipment is doing its job and pulling its share of the weight. If you want to check out all of my notes from this episode, you can head over to golfstrategyschool.com slash clubfitting. And as always, until next time, I will catch you in the short grass. Cheers. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Strategy School. As always, if you want to keep it in the short grass, all you got to do is put those lessons into effect. And if you want to see exactly how you fare in terms of your physical performance to other golfers your age, head over to par4success.com slash griffin, and you'll be able to see exactly where you line up and match up with other golfers your age based off of this free performance assessment that Chris and his team has put together. Again, that's parforsuccess.com slash Griffin to see exactly how well you line up against all their golfers your age. And I'll just drop a link to it in the show notes.